Welcome to the Bike Talk with Dave podcast. I'm your host, Dave Mabel. Thanks so much for tuning in. And I sure hope you enjoy today's episode with professional mountain biker and gravel cyclist and cycling coach, Hannah Otto. As much as I did talking to her, it was a real delight. I've known Hannah for more than a decade now, mostly from her time racing at Jingle Cross and the National Cyclocross Championships. But we connected even longer ago when she competed as a triathlete at the Flatland Triathlon in Des Moines, which I was shooting. I had a few good photos of her in the sport that led her to where she is today, racing in the dirt. I've wanted to have Hannah on for a while now, and A, I'm stoked to have her on, and B, our timing is perfect as she's a successful coach helping many people like you and me strive for and reach our cycling goals. This is the perfect time of year to get her perspective on crafting next year's season. And not just so we're in the best shape of our lives for the events that we're targeting, but how to stay sharp and fresh all year long. The other reason that the timing is perfect is that she just got back from La Ruta de la Conquistadores, a three-day, three-stage mountain bike race across Costa Rica. Across Costa Rica. I'm so excited to hear the stories from her race through what no one would describe as a flat and dry landscape, for sure. Now, a quick plug before we dive in. I do still have some Bike Talk with Dave beanies available. They're only 25 bucks, and it, that gets it shipped to your door to keep your head warm all winter long. Just shoot me a note on Instagram or Facebook, and we'll get your order going. Okay, now that we've ensured that you've got a warm head and you look great, let's dive right into my conversation with Hannah Otto. Hannah Otto, what a pleasure to see you. Uh, it has been a hot minute, but um, I know you from Cross, but you've been doing so much more. Uh, thanks for coming on Bike Talk with Dave. I love it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. We have a ton to talk about. I want to do kind of a brief overview of like who you are. I know you from Cross and um, Lindenwood. I didn't uh -huh. look at the pictures, but Lindenwood... Um, Gosh, coming across the finish line, collegiate cross nationals in the snow in Hartford, Connecticut. What yeah. an epic year that was, huh? Yeah, yeah, really. Yeah, it feels um, like a lifetime ago now. It kind of does feel like a lifetime ago, <laughs> like long enough ago that nationals has been in Hartford again since yeah. uh, since that day. Yeah, seriously. But uh, collegiate racer and pro, you also raced with, um, oh gosh, one of my favorite humans, Katarina Nash and the Cliff Bar crew, but gosh, since then you've dove into gravel, mountain, pretty pretty hardcore full time on the old, the old Lifetime series, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, so many different avenues nowadays. Super thankful for the way that it seems like the sport just continues to grow and expand. And um, I don't know if I was just newer back then, but I feel like you know in the last five plus years, there have been so many new and exciting opportunities, um, you know, all bike centric, but through different avenues. Yeah, it is kind of interesting how uh, this is probably a rant that we're going to, or a rabbit hole we're diving down. But um, in the US, like it has gone from on the dirt, it was cross and uh, there was some mountain biking, obviously. Um, you know, Snowshoe World Cup has been around a bit, but beyond that, it's been Races like Leadville and Schwamigan and Sea Otter and um, I don't know, not not your European World Cup type of of series, but um, you know, and road there was uh, stage races, Tour of California, Tour of Georgia, Tour of Utah, Tour of Missouri, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, and now it's like. Lifetime Grand Prix and Gravel, Gravel, Gravel. And of course, we've got Leadville and Schwamigan and Sea Otter and 
and all that kind of fun dirt stuff. But um, it definitely is kind of a changing scene here in the States. And you've kind of been riding that dirt wave since, well, since that snowy afternoon in Hartford, Connecticut so many years ago. Yeah, I think there's just so many opportunities nowadays. And, you know, I've I've done a lot of the U.S. UCI races as well as overseas, the World Cups and all of that is super exciting to race on that highest level. But in the last two years, we had the Lifetime Grand Prix come up. And I'll admit there's a piece of me that realized that this is a huge opportunity for racing in the U.S. and for fandom, cycling fandom in the U.S. And it was definitely almost a FOMO moment where it was like, I don't want to miss out on this big wave that's happening. And I think that was actually something that pulled me in to start with is just realizing I can't miss this moment because I think this moment is going to be something that we potentially talk about you know, for years to come, even decades or generations later being, you know, remember when hopefully it's still happening. Right. But even like the good old days of when the Grand Prix started. And I want my name to be a piece of that. Well, it definitely is a piece of that. You definitely jumped on board. How do you envision it evolving as it goes on? I don't feel like this gravel wave, um, thing is done. And, and I say that, and, and I've talked to, um, I don't know, quite a few roadies about the road scene here in the U S which is certainly not at its highest point ever. Um, and, uh, a comment we keep hearing is, Oh, we need a, we need a hero. We need somebody to look up to and somebody to excite us about riding on the road. And who knows, maybe that's Sep Coos and maybe there's a new road wave coming back. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, certainly we can't see into the future, but what's your vision of the future with, with all this gravel stuff? Yeah, I mean, I think that mass start events are definitely having a moment right now. That's something, like you said, we can't see into the future, but we know for sure right now in the present it is having a moment. But I think what's really special is I see a model that feels very sustainable and that's because the model extends outside of the professional world. So I think in a lot of spaces, like road, like these other disciplines that we're talking about, it relies so heavily on purely fandom, just people enjoying watching it, which is great. And that's something we always want. But it does ebb and flow according to, as you also mentioned, the heroes, like who's performing well? Do we have someone in the U.S. that we're rallying behind? And because of that reason, it's not always sustainable. It's going to rise and fall. But within the gravel space, or I'm going to even extend that to the endurance, the endurance realm, period, most of those events are built around the average amateur athlete and and those athletes achieving something truly remarkable and exciting. And I think there's always going to be a market for that. I mean, we see it in other sports. For example, Ironman, we see how massive that you know, sort of model and franchise has been because there's always going to want to, there's always going to be people who want to call themselves an Ironman. Um, just like I hope, and I think there always will people be people that want to call themselves a Leadville finisher. And I think as professional athletes in this space, it's our job, uh, to be able to just relate to people in that space, to create bigger goals, to create perspective, um, you know, people get really excited when they finish Leadville and they ask the pros their times and they can really comprehend what it means to go that fast, you know, versus in these other things. Like we try so hard for things like the tour to try and create this perspective for people to look at it. And we throw up power numbers and speeds and, and different things so that we can all kind of scratch our heads and say, Oh, wow, they are doing superhuman feats. 
But just watching the screen, it's like, I don't know how fast they're going because they're all going that speed. They're all, you know, it like kind of, it, it, it becomes hard to really tell. Um, but in these mass start events, people really can feel and understand what it takes to accomplish these feats and hopefully feel both amazement at what some of the pros can do, but also a relatability and a closeness of we suffered many of the same trials out there. Yeah, absolutely. I interviewed Dave Weens. Um, he's now uh, executive director of IMBA, but uh, he and I shared Leadville start lines a handful of times. Yeah. And while he was showered and dressed and had dinner before we crossed the finish line, my wife and I did on tandem. Um, uh, we still have something to talk about. Oh, what was Absolutely. it like for you going up power line? Oh, how was St. Kevin's? Was it crowded for you going up St. Kevin's? And we had the same shared experiences. Exactly. And you're absolutely right. We watched the Tour de France and I, I'm watching. I've raced road for longer than you've been alive. And um, I, I'm watching the tour and I'm like, I wonder if I could just hang in that pack right now. And they're all just floating along at however fast they're going, chatting. And I'm like, I don't even know if I could just sit in that field. I don't know. Because mm -hmm. it looks like they're going easy, and then the TV will pan down to the speedometer of the motorcycle, and they're going like 60K an hour, and I'm <laughs> yeah. like, they're just, they're talking. Like, I can't <laughs> even go that fast. So you're right. It's, it's something I can't even relate to, and I don't know if I could, I mean, I'd probably have to walk going up Alpe d'Huez or something. I don't know. And they're just, they make it look so easy, but you're but right. But that's you, the point is it is hard to know. And yeah, a piece of that is what's intriguing, but a piece of me also, as I watch that stuff, even as a fellow pro is like, man, I want the opportunity to try. I want to know how long that would take me. And there's just a little bit further of a gap um, in road as comparison to what we're experiencing in the U.S. right now with the off-road endurance scene. Yeah, as a, like, opposed to you and the 3,000 other people at the start of uh, Unbound, which totally. is is cool that you all get to have that same shared experience. Mm -hmm. Everybody does. So um, that's cool. Yeah. So you've got an optimistic view of mass start events and and uh, endurance events. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm just super thankful to be a part of it right now. And yeah, it's something that I really enjoy. And I think that it's... Um, it's a place that I feel really comfortable and something that I feel like I'm diving further into every year because there it is so exciting and there is that challenge aspect. And that's something that I've been chasing ever since I was a little kid, uh, you know, nine years old getting into triathlon was was the adventure. The fact that my bike could take me places that I otherwise wouldn't get to go. And I'm seeing that piece of me come out again in these endurance events because they are a race and they are a challenge, but they're also an adventure. And I think that's what took me, brought me to this sport in the first place. How so you did start in triathlon and it's the second you said that I'm like, oh yeah, you were in Des Moines. I have a picture of you at the Flatland Triathlon Series. I was looking at that actually right before we got on this. Um, it was dated 2012. So that's oh, how wow. long. Wow, 11 years ago. That's other. awesome. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Very cool. <laughs> that is very cool. That is very cool. Um, so, has the transition from uh, triathlon cross, which is 45 minutes, and even like World Cup mountain biking, which is hour and a half or 20 minutes at maximum heart rate that ever happened in the world? i.e. the short track, <laughs> yeah. um, to a 200-mile race. Has that transition been a challenge for you, or did your body adapt? Did you adapt? Was it? Did it come naturally? That's a great question. I think 
For me, I'm finding that the longer events are something that I'm probably more physiologically inclined towards. So while I would say there's a big learning curve of it because there's a lot that goes into these long events outside of fitness, um, and that's a whole nother realm, right? Like there's the nutrition, the equipment, the planning, the mapping, the course review, so many details when it comes to these long events. That was a massive learning curve, but I would say that my experience of the race itself has come in many ways a lot more naturally than some of these shorter events. Oh, that's interesting. I picture you as a short, high heart rate, maximum effort kind of person, but it's because I know you from cyclocross. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And that's definitely what I've spent a large majority of my career doing. Um and still doing. And I absolutely love that. But I think, ooh, I think, I do think physiologically the long stuff, but I also think the mindset really serves me well. And by that, you know, maybe I don't want to say something too controversial, but I'll just say in my mind, I feel like I can out suffer anyone. Um, at least that's like my mantra out there. And so when the going gets tough, I feel like, man, the harder, the better, because I will give up last. And I think that serves me really well in these races. Why would that be controversial to say? <laughs> like we should, all, every one of us should be saying that to ourselves and believe it intrinsically, don't you think? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, and it's funny because that's that's a big, I've, I love this conversation. That's, I think, a big job of mine as a coach, actually, especially for people who do these long events, is I need the athletes that I coach to fully believe when they stand on the start line that they can do it because all of us from first to last are going to experience moments out on the course in these long events where you feel like garbage and you have to be able to get through that because you will have that moment, but it will get better. But in that dip, if there's any piece of you that doubts, you will fall to that piece immediately. And so that's a big thing that I'm looking for in the athletes that I'm coaching in the, in the days, weeks, and months leading up to the event is, do I hear doubt in your voice? Are you expressing doubt to me? Because if so, we need to get we need to do whatever it takes for you to eliminate that doubt. It's not even about the physical piece at that point. It's about getting the mind ready uh, to not give up because um, that's all too easy in those dark moments out there. It is all too easy, although I have to say like some of these gravel races, these long gravel races um, where all you're following is a uh, <laughs> cue card, like yeah. the only way you know how to get home is to follow the cue card. Like there's no way to quit other than when I get to the finish line in 65 miles, I'm going to quit because I'll be done. But that's the only way I know to get there, which is kind of funny. I, 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 would, actually be, have... I would be super curious what the, the DNF rate would be if it was easier to DNF, right? Like I've heard so many people say, if there was a SAG vehicle, I would have gotten in it right there, but I didn't know what else to do. So that could be a really interesting exercise. I'm not quite sure how that study would be run, but. <laughs> I think we need to host like a 140 mile gravel race that's really hard in the rain and at 34 degrees. And on, we had to host two. One of them, we're gonna park a bus yeah, every five miles <laughs> and the other one like nothing all you get is a cue card and it just has an arrow like you don't even get to do your garmin that'll like you can't push home you can't push <laughs> take me the short way all you get is a cue card That's and great. you have to keep going yep so we'll we'll test that but it's i mean there's a lot of truth to that my wife would tell you too she's like we had no other way to get home other than follow the course. We had no yeah. idea where we were. So <laughs> it, it happens. Um, so you are a coach. I'm glad you brought that up because I do want to talk about that. Uh, before we do, though, I so bad want to hear about Costa Rica. Should we come back to Costa Rica or should we go there now? Let's go there now. Yeah, because it's fresh. I just came back less than a week ago. So let's chat about that. 
All right. Um, the most fun thing about that race is our, mm, not our first, our second tandem. Our The tandem we did Leadville on was called um, El Conquistador. Oh, And very the race cool. you just got back from was La Ruta de la Conquistador, right? Yes. Is that right? I'm correct. right on that. Did yes, I say that right. correct? Yep. All right, cool. Um, tell me, how would you describe that race? And then how did you experience that race? Yeah. Um, La Ruta is, I would classify it in the legendary category. It's just, it's in this realm of races that, at least for me, and I think for a lot of endurance athletes, be it amateur or, or pro, are sort of these bucket list races, like these shiny objects that you get to say, like, I've done Leadville, I've done Unbound, I've done La Ruta. It's really, in my opinion, it's up there in those categories. And I've watched a lot of pros over the years, uh, and, and I would say the generation ahead of me, go to La Ruta and compete in it. And I have been dreaming of competing in that race long before I ever could have finished it. So this year, uh, when the opportunity arose to go, it was like, oh my gosh, this feels like sort of a dream fulfilled. You know, it was very much a, a bucket list opportunity for me. Um, and I was going there for myself. Like I said, the bike is such a tool for adventure that that's really what this race was for me, was a chance to go an adventure. Um, and oh my gosh, let me tell you, it was a very hard, <laughs> very long <laughs> adventure. Uh, so La Ruta is a three-day mountain bike stage race that goes across Costa Rica. This year it went from the Caribbean to the Pacific. And it's three stages. The first stage was about two and a half hours. It was 40 miles and relatively flat. The second stage was about four and a half hours for me. It was 40 miles with 10,000 feet of climbing. So incredibly steep. And then the third stage was just shy of 70 miles with 11,000 feet of climbing. And that one took about seven hours for me. So all in all, this is a race with a lot of climbing, a lot of very diverse terrain. And probably the most famous thing about it, uh, this year was in the third stage. They always go through what they call uh, Carrara, which is, it's a national park, Carrara National Park. And it is, no matter what the weather, a massive mud bog. And even if you had described it to me a million times, I never would have anticipated what it was actually like. Um, and let me tell you, I went around from person to person trying to do my due diligence on what is this section like, you know, because everyone has different perspective. But this thing, it's like when you're in it, it's so different. Basically, it's what it ended up being was an hour long hike a bike. It was about four miles of hike a bike and it was in thick, thick red mud that sometimes you would step and it would only go up to your ankle, but sometimes you would step and it would go up to your knee. Um, oh. And it would feel almost like what I would imagine quicksand to feel like because there was that suction effect as you tried to pull your whole leg out of it. And so in, and there's just these massive ruts and it's about 40% gradient as well. So I'm using one hand to hold my bike and one hand to, to sort of move myself along the ground and steady myself. And I'm, I'm, it's hard to even say walking. It's more like climbing, crawling and walking up this thing for approximately an hour. Um, and that came in the last 15 miles of the last day of this event. And for me, I think that's awesome. You know, I think I think <laughs> a lot awesome. of people. I it's think brutal. A, yeah, totally. I think some people, um, you know, the Costa Ricans. This is this is what they do, right? So they're like, we're the toughest out there. This is our terrain. And then I think a lot of people from the U.S. from other places come in, and they're like, this isn't mountain biking. What is this? Uh, and and can get a little frustrated. But I think for me, you know, I came there with the mindset of this is an adventure. This is a challenge. And so every time I felt myself have that lack of patience, it was like, no, no, no. 
this is what you're here for. And I, I, because of that, I really couldn't stop smiling. And I think that is a big takeaway for me of one, that mindset of remembering, because that can apply to anything that can apply to Unbound, that can apply to Leadville. When you're suffering, that's what you're there for. So, you know, it, the suffering doesn't get easier, but but smile through it because that's what you're there for. And then another big thing I took away was that perspective shift, because I think especially as I get older and I get more races under my belt, I'm realizing how valuable it is to add these tools to the toolbox because our minds are constantly comparing. And when you have a comparison that is so just gigantic, everything else is sort of dwarfed in size. And that's a good thing, you know, because now nothing will ever quite seem as hard because I have this one really hard thing. And so it's like, okay, yeah, other things are still a challenge, but I can say, yeah, 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 but I did that hike a bike on the Ruta so I can get through that. You know, it, it's that same perspective of, of skills or of challenging trails of, yeah, this drop is scary, but I've done a drop bigger than it. And I think that, I think that that's such a valuable thing and something that I would recommend to people, you know, in all uh, places of their career from young high school kids to masters athletes of keep adding those tools. You can do races that are not your main event simply to have new experiences because those new experiences will help you in those A events. That is genius. Like that's so true. I can remember when I started doing Schwam again and, um, you're, uh, I love that you guys come to Schwam again now on the Lifetime Grand Prix. Oh, I love so seeing you guys blast. there. Um, but that was though that was considered a marathon mountain bike race, right? Mm-hmm. It was forty miles, and that was oh my gosh, it's a marathon. We're on our bikes for like three hours. Oh my yeah. gosh, it's <laughs> so long. And then we started doing Leadville, yeah. and we would do Leadville, and then a month later was Schwam again, and Schwam again felt like running a 10k yeah like oh you can just hammer schwam again it's over i bring one water bottle and maybe one goo and we yes. just fly through it and it's because the perspective changed i did something so much longer so much harder like when you go back to uh leadville you're probably gonna be like power line <laughs> like that's easy it's rock i can ride it it's easy so yeah um, that perspective is is genius, and what a great idea to. If it's not your A event, that doesn't matter. Go do something really hard, mm-hmm. and put it in your memory bank, and then it'll make your A event seem easier. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So if we're doing Unbound, should we do like Gravel Worlds? Uh, what's their um, the long voyage first? To make two hundred <laughs> miles seem short. <laughs> Oh, I don't know if you should do it first, but I mean, that's a funny concept, right? Is if unbound, if you're doing unbound multiple times and, and you want to make it feel easy, you want that to be your A event. It's probably not a bad thing to experience something more challenging, you know, and that's something we try and do in training, right? Is I don't want to make it seem like, oh yeah, like if you do Unbound, you need to go and ride 24 hours beforehand. Absolutely not. Like the people that I coach for Unbound, we're not e- we're not going to do even an eight-hour ride before. We're going to keep it in the reasonable range of, you know, five, six hours. But we are trying to do things that will mimic the race and or be harder. And, you know, one of the very on the most basic level way we do that is intervals right? We push harder than we will during the race so that when we get to race day, it's like, oh, wow, tempo feels easy or wow, Z2 feels easy because I've been doing all these threshold intervals. It's December now. And I love that we're talking in December because December is such a great time for people to look back on the year they just had, Mm -hmm. uh, be excited about their successes, try and figure out what went wrong on um, their unsuccessful rides and then put together a calendar, if even 
and I realize there's people like me. I don't know what every race I'm doing. Somebody's like, oh, what are you getting ready for? I'm like, well, I know I'm doing this and this, and I don't know, I might do this and this, and if this is fun, I might do that. But if something else comes up, I'm, I'm cool. But um, So I'm not quite as structured as perhaps you will be. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but how do you talk people through December? How do you look at the year behind? And what do you say about putting together the year ahead? for your clients? Excellent question. Yeah, I think, um, you know, usually December is a time that it can, it's an interesting time because it can be a time that's very inspirational. We see that with a lot of New Year's resolutions. I feel like it can also sometimes be underlying time of panic um, because people look back of like, oh, I didn't accomplish what I wanted this year, so I have to change all of these things for next year. Um, So I think that it can be a delicate time to sort of evaluate, ideally looking forward. I think that what can be dangerous is when we spend too much time looking back. I think throughout the year, hopefully you've evaluated things as they've come. We've pushed through maybe some moments that were difficult and we've left those behind. So now what we're doing is we're really looking forward and we're we're not going back to those races that didn't go well. We're only taking the things that we learned from them and applying them looking forward. Um, and so I think it's really a time, a big time to set goals, to acknowledge those things that you've learned to help you set those goals. And I think goal setting has become such a complicated process. Uh, I, 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 there's definitely less specific goals that, are, that don't fit the mold of what we like to put on paper. You know, I'm sure everyone's heard of SMART goals, right? And then, then there are, you know, so there are quote unquote good goals and not good goals. But I think at the most basic level, I get on so many calls with athletes where we get on the phone and they say, what should my goal be for next year? And that always like, it takes me aback because your goal should be like what lights you on fire? Like what is exciting you right now? I think as a coach, my job is to get you to that goal. I don't want to set it for you because any goal that is set by someone else, you're not going to be driven by that for the next six, eight, 12 months. I want to hear those big scary things that have been dwelling and sitting in your mind, you know, over the last however long year or years um and let's work to achieve those together so i think december is really a time to say those things to acknowledge what you've learned and then to make a plan to get there that's awesome that's perfect that's interesting people would ask you that yeah yeah i think i think it's because especially in the sports world it can be it can be really scary to set a goal. I mean, setting goals are very vulnerable. I'll admit that. I think, I mean, there's, I try and be very transparent and say my goals, but there are also some things that, you know, you just carry that inside because it's a little, it's a little maybe too personal to say out loud because when you say a goal, you are opening yourself up to publicly fail, Um, whether that's as a professional athlete, literally publicly, or as, you know, an amateur, maybe it's just within your family or it's to your coach. Like it's still, it feels icky to fail. And so I think a lot of people, instead of, instead of wanting to say that for themselves, they try to protect themselves by having someone else set it for them. Because if someone else says it, they can believe more that they're capable of it. Because if as a coach, I say, oh, I think your goal should be sub nine at Leadville, they have, they have more belief in me setting that expectation than them saying it for themselves. They may not believe it's a reality. Yes, exactly. Until they hear it from somebody who knows them very well. Yes, yeah. For sure. And so I think, and I do think I, that is 
I want to affirm your goals. I might tell someone, hey, maybe that's a two-year goal or, oh, you got that too easy. We can push harder. But I want to hear it come from you first and then we can fine-tune it together because I want to know that what you're pushing for, you're excited about. Yeah, that's fair. Um, you're a good one to ask because, whew, I don't even know like when your season starts, but I know <laughs> sea otter kicks off in April and yes. you just got home from La Ruta. That's a long season. Uh, you do more than lifetime events. Um, I don't honestly know how you guys, uh, I say that, but it's like, I don't know, Sepp Coos probably races, has more race days than mm -hmm. you do. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, whatever, but I, you guys have a very full, very long calendar. Uh, I'm just a guy, you know, um, and you work with like just humans, just people like me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, how, like, I don't know, like how ambitious can just a human, just a, a mere mortal be in planning out their year? Like how ambitious, mm. um, should we be in our planning? You know, yeah. I did 10 races last year. It was fun. I was not overwhelmed. I saw your pictures from your, your well-earned time off. And I'm like, I don't know that I need time off. Like I had time <laughs> off, you know, when last week when we went to uh, Austin for Thanksgiving mm -hmm. or whatever, even though mm -hmm. we ran a 5k and whatever. Um, but uh, I, I don't know. I mean, talk about having too much and not having enough on your plate yeah. over the course of a year. Totally. I think that for the average person, there's a lot of things to take into consideration. Um, and by average person, I simply mean someone who works a full-time job. So, mm, you know, there's, there's a lot that goes in to racing that isn't just the fitness, you know, it's your training, for example, everything you do impacts your training. So if you, you know, some people, man, they're so driven and massive kudos to them. You know, when I was in college, I was on that ship too of like, yeah, I'll get the training in. I'll wake up at four. It doesn't matter if I slept four hours, I'm still getting up. And it feels like as long as you're getting in, you're, do you're getting it in, you're doing the thing. But there is a certain point in which, in which everything else in your life does limit your ability to train and be successful on the bike as well. And so I think it's really important to first acknowledge all of those other things that you have going on and to create those priorities because, you know, family comes before bikes, right? Like job for most people comes before bikes. And so you have to recognize, okay, well, for example, maybe I live somewhere really, really cold and I want my A race to be in California in March, but I'm not going to be able to get outside even at all before that. You know, that, that's a legitimate barrier. It's not something you can't overcome, but these are things to consider when you're setting your calendar. You know, maybe you have big family vacations. You probably shouldn't have your A race immediately after that. Um, you know, I've had people who come in with coaching, like I said, and they say, yeah, I can do 20 hours on the bike a week, but oh my goodness, they're so stressed and so strained that they can do that for three weeks. And then you just see their performance completely dip because they haven't been getting the sleep and the rest and then they're sick and, and this spiraling. So it's really important to acknowledge that the bike racer is the full human being, um, so I think that's really step one is saying, okay, what all do I have on my plate? Where does bike racing fit into that? And, and then from there acknowledge, you know, now these are my goals. And then I think within that goal framework, there's some really basic principles, um, starting with ideally, you know, if you're brand new, you really want 24 weeks of training before your A event. If you have a pretty solid base, you've been doing this for years, you can probably cut that down to about 12 weeks of training before your A event. Um, and then from there, you know, you want at least 
eight to 12 weeks between your A events because you need to be able to taper, uh, do your A event, detrain, and build again. And so within that framework, that means realistically you're probably only going to have two to three A races a year. Those aren't the only races you get to do. That's just, these are the races where you can have massive expectation and you can say, man, I am putting all my chips to the center of the table for these events. And then within those events, we start, or within that framework, we start filling in, okay, those are your two or three like big hurrah moments. Now let's fill in the other things that are fun, the other things we want to do to add perspective, to practice for those A events, to practice our nutrition, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's kind of the, you know, start at one end and build your season. Sometimes it almost feels like backwards uh, to get to those main goals. How do you um, balance the word fun (laughs) in that training fun versus serious like there's so many people i ride with and it's like well there's so many people we might start riding with and then you know they're on a mission they're on a program they're watching their watts they're watching their uh heart rate they're watching the clock and it's like they just they ride off and there's no like well that was fun (laughs) you know like um but how do you balance that because i I definitely value intentional work, Mm -hmm. if you will, but I also value the joy of riding a bicycle. 100%. Yeah, and I think it is a balance, and that balance is going to look different for everybody. Um, I think fun can also be, you know, what gives you life, what gives you energy. And for some people, you know, myself included, I love the structure. Uh, it sounds so cheesy, but like the most fun I have is, is when I'm out there doing intervals, that might be a controversial statement, but (laughs) I just love that. Um, and it can actually be sometimes more of a challenge for me to get out of that type A mindset and just eliminate, uh, all the metrics to go ride. But even so I do force myself to do that because I think it's important to be well-rounded and experience those things. For other people who don't particularly enjoy the intervals, I think it's just the flip side, you know, like, hey, sometimes we have to do those intervals. We have to push that, but also let's make time for these fun rides because what's going to make you best in this sport is the consistency over time. It does take a significant amount of time to get to where you want to be. Even if we're only talking about, like I said, if you're new, 24 weeks, 24 weeks is still a decent amount of time. And so if what you're doing is not sustainable, aka it's not bringing you energy and joy, you're not going to keep doing it. And then you're never going to reach whatever potential you may have had, had you had a plan that you were able to stick with. I, you may have answered my question. I was going to ask, point out that you race professionally for a very long period of time throughout the course of a, a calendar year. And I was going to ask how much fun you have on a bicycle, but it sounds like you have <laughs> fun. Like when I, I hate intervals, I hated those like one minute, three minute, five minute, tw- uh, 20 minute. Oh my gosh. Um, I did them back when I was like racing hard, but I hated them. I hated those rides. I love the group rides and I, you know, sometimes group ride, you can go a lot harder than when you're out there pushing yourself. But I also love the variety though. Like I, I, you know, if we're talking about the race season too, like, man, I, I love travel and I love seeing new places and the bike is one of the best ways to see those new places. So like going back to Costa Rica, for example, if I had just gone there on vacation, I would have seen, you know, 10% of what I saw um, compared to what I saw because I was there riding my bike. I mean, the bike takes you places 
it takes you further than you can walk and it takes you places you can't drive. So the bike, you know, you get this really intimate connection with a lot of landscapes and locations that you wouldn't get otherwise. And so I'm so driven by by the long race calendar and by the new events and the new opportunities and the new locations. And um, yeah, like I said, I'm a big adventure seeker. And so I... I think that the bike is this wonderful way that I get to, you know, very sneakily weave in my desire to travel and call it my job as well. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I love that. You have definitely woven together a, a beautiful career. In your year, you are currently taking off two weeks mm-hmm. off the bike completely. Mm-hmm. Um, how does your year, like, how do you, mold your year to get ready for I feel like every lifetime race is an a race yeah and that starts in April but how like what's your winter look like yeah so I like I said like you just said I take two weeks off the bike and then I have a pretty mellow end to the year you know I'll just start up getting comfortable again, quote unquote, building that base. And then the first week in January, I will pack on up and go to California. And it's funny because every year I spend more and more time there. And I think part of that is me seeking the improvement. And then part of it is also the nature of what we're seeing across the sport, which I think is also very cool, is I think the level of competition is just getting higher and higher. And you see people pulling on more and more resources every year. And in order to keep up with that, you have to match that. And so you're seeing more and more athletes travel to warm locations to really get in those massive base seasons and like you said in the Grand Prix all of the events are very important there isn't really a time in which you can take a big dip or take a big break in the middle of the year and so because of that the base season becomes more important than ever because you're building a foundation that you're going to pull on all year long. There aren't as many opportunities in the calendar anymore to, hey, now I have two months without racing. I'm going to go reestablish that base. Instead, you're actually, you're, you're going to be trying to maintain, honestly, a lot of the year because you're going to be tapering, building, tapering, building. And there aren't a ton of opportunities to do these massive camps, which just means that first one is more important than ever now. That's interesting. As you said that, I'm reminded of, I talked with Gage Hecht, uh, the year he was national champion Uh, at Jingle and we were talking about cross and he said, you know, it's just, um, the course of a hour long race is, um, a bunch of micro rests. And I think (laughs) if you take the scope of a race and you expand it to 12 months, you get a bunch of micro rests throughout the course of your year between, between your events. Yeah. And I'll add too, because I think it's interesting is another thing off the bike we're doing in that off season is, you know, planning and really thinking about what that season ahead looks like from a logistical standpoint and some of us do more logistics than others depending on whether you're a team or you're on your own program but all of us deal with the logistics of being on the road being a human being uh handling our equipment you know we like we said all of these events are very different and the level of competition is getting higher which means I think it's very interesting that I think the word I would actually use is creative. I think you're having to be a lot more creative with how you approach some of these races to try and gain an edge. You know, are you wearing a pack or are you carrying a bottle? Are you using a bigger chain ring? What tires are you running? All of these things I think are requiring more and more attention than ever before. And that sort of mental and allostatic load that can accumulate across the year 
that can take a huge toll on people as well. And so I try and also use this time in the off season to think through many of those questions so that when I'm in the thick of it, I've maybe already answered some of those for myself. And it's a lot more plug and play than uh, it would otherwise be. You've taken the pressure of making decisions as much out of the equation as you can. So you're not mentally exhausted as well. It sounds like. Yes. Um, You know, like the Lifetime Series and beyond that, because there's some big races that are outside of the Lifetime Series, but um, the Lifetime Series has been, has become super important for individuals wanting to race here Mm -hmm. in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, I don't know how to, how to ask, but for those who aren't in the lifetime, um, is it possible to not be in the lifetime Grand Prix and carve a cycling career out in the U.S. these days, in your opinion? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think so. I think that, well, one, there's obviously still the U.S. Cup UCI races. Um, So I think for a lot of like junior and U23 riders, there's a, I mean, there's for elites as well, but especially the juniors and U23s, there's a ton of opportunity there because that's where a lot of those Devo teams are looking. And so you know, there's still that whole calendar. And then, you know, just because you're not in the Grand Prix, you can still race all of those events. Um, You know, of some of them, you have to make sure you're very on top of getting in the lottery or whatnot, but they're still open to all professional riders the same way that they're open to all amateur riders. And so, you know, we saw plenty of times someone not in the Grand Prix make it in the top 10 this last year. And those are very accomplished athletes. And so I hope to continue seeing that because not only does it continue to level up the whole competitive field um, and some athletes, I think that might be a way that they get into the Grand Prix in the future, but also I, I know there are other athletes out there that are maybe pursuing something different. Maybe they're a road pro who wants to just come and do one of the Grand Prix gravel races and they can't commit to the whole thing. I still think it's great to see them come and give us all a run for our money uh, and continue to raise that bar. And so, yeah, I, I think I think that it's definitely possible to be successful in the U.S. and not be in the Grand Prix, but it's certainly given a wonderful platform. And I think one of the biggest things it's given to all of us who, who are in it and doing it, it's less to me, it's less about the notoriety of being in the Grand Prix and more about the fact that the Grand Prix exists at all, because otherwise races can become very diluted. You can show up to an event and man, none of the people that I would consider to be the biggest competition showed up um and it and it just kind of dilutes the level then and we're not pushing each other as hard and so the grand prix has really created hey everyone these are the events where the biggest competition is gonna be like come show up let's see what let's see what we can do and i think that's elevating the sport as a whole yeah uh, i think uh you hit the nail on the head there you're right and i haven't looked at it from that perspective so I appreciate that, and, and I think that's um, reality. I, I know some folks who did not get in for the upcoming year, and I'm like, oh, is that the end of their career? But you're right. It doesn't have to be. They can still sign up. They can still kick your butt. Exactly, and, um... <laughs> exactly. And I think, you know, on that topic, of course, there's there are people that – looking at the list, it's like, oh, you know, this person should have gotten in or that person should have gotten in. But I I really hope that they still can find a way to get to all those events because you're right, they can still absolutely come and kick all of our butts and make us all scratch our heads. And, you know, that's 
maybe they'll get more attention because they could win and not be in the Grand Prix. And that's a headline in and of itself, right? Uh, absolutely. Uh, uh, Toby uh, Torbjorn Road won the Big Sugar, mm-hmm. came out of nowhere. He was on yep. a freaking amateur team, actually out of Des Moines, and uh, beat all the guys. That was awesome. That was a great finish. And uh, fun to see. Yeah. Of course, he's in the Grand Prix this year. (laughs) See, there you go. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I asked him, I said, uh, so what's the thing on your resume that's going to get you in the Grand Prix? And I was like, I, or he says, uh, pretty sure winning Big Sugar will get me in. I'm like, that's fair. That's a pretty good thing to have on your resume. But absolutely. Yeah. Um, All right, Hannah, I'm going to encourage people to get a hold of you and follow you on the gram and read your blog. And uh, hopefully I'll see you at uh, some events next year. Um, And in the meantime, get out my calendar and kind of craft it and pick out two or three A events and build around them and see if I can put together a way to... My my big event is actually in 14 months or so, um, Arrowhead 135 fat bike race. Very cool. Uh, very cold, not cool. Yeah. Very, <laughs> very cold. Are you um, already a big fat biker, or is this a whole new venture? I don't own a fat bike. Okay. So That's it's a exciting. brand new deal. Yeah, it's it's, and that you know I'm going to spend the next year kind of talking about it because we all need content for our our um, audio blogs, if you will. Uh, i.e. podcast, but um, it, it scares me. You said pick out some stuff that's uh, big and scary, and this is big and scary for me. I've done Leadville and Trans-Iowa and that, you know all these things, Gravel World. I, I've done all kinds of stuff. This fat bike thing scares me. So I love it. Um, Sounds like the perfect yes. goal then. Yeah, well, I hope so. I hope so. So that's that's where I'm headed. But anyway, I appreciate your time. I'm so glad we connected. And... Uh, it was fun to see you at Schwamm again and, uh, and connect here. And I'll look forward to seeing you again. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. You bet. Thank you. I really appreciate Hannah making the time to join us here today. I'm sure her quote unquote off season is short and really off season just means time off the bike, not time off work as she is busy working with her athletes and doing interviews like this all while prepping for her next season. Be sure to give her a follow on Instagram at Hannah underscore Finchamp or just search for her married name, Hannah Otto. Plus, you can find her blog and all of her coaching information at hannahfinchamp.com. Of course, I'll put some links in the show notes. Speaking of notes, I want you to note that I am very thankful for you tuning in, for liking, for sharing and subscribing. I love hearing your comments and I love getting your notes and I love just knowing that you continue to tune in. I'd like to encourage you to rate and review on your favorite podcast platform and that includes YouTube where every new episode is published each week. Just look for the Bike Talk with Dave channel on YouTube and you'll see each episode as well as some extras extras including the three films that I've made, Reach for the Stars, Down the Kuskokwim, and A Thousand Miles to Nome. The three films that made me think that doing the Arrowhead 135 was a good idea next year. So if you dig the show, please rate and review and share it with your friends and that will help this show continue to grow. And if you really love it and you want to support it financially, I would invite you to drop a few coins in the cup at buymeacoffee.com. Just look for Bike Talk with Dave and I'll send you a sticker. As we look forward to a new season of riding in 2024, I'd love it if you said hi at one of the events we find each other in. At the moment, I'm looking forward to the 100K of gravel at Serum in February and then the warmth of Texas at the Rattlesnake Gravel Grind in March, and the Gents Ride in April, and of course, the Core 4 in August, where no surface is left untouched. 
Join me on these and all the other rides and races this year. I've got a pile of stickers I'd love to pass out as long as I remember to bring them. Now I'll be back in two weeks to kick off 2024 with a short dive into the Arrowhead 135 with some recordings I made during the 2020 edition of the race with some of the badasses that throw it down for the 135 mile trek through the Minnesota Northwoods each January. I'm also getting closer to dropping the film that I started in 2020. It's called 60 Hours, and I'm super excited to share it with you. But in the meantime, I hope you have a great New Year's celebration, great holidays, and remember that nothing compares to the simple pleasure of riding a bicycle. Bicycle.